0: Hello, everyone. I'm Mari Forth. I'm Sarah Carradine, podcasting from unceded Gadigal land.
1: And this is Crime Scene, the true crime review podcast, where we get to the heart of how true crime stories are told. You can get this fine program along with all the fantastic reality TV content by subscribing to RobHasAWebsite.com slash feed. That's RobHasAWebsite.com slash R-H-A-P-U-P-S-Feed. We'd love it if you would
0: subscribe to our dedicated feed. Please go to com slash crime feed. You'll get your true crime on Tuesdays. If you've already subscribed, thank you so much. And thank you to Dominica and Spain where we are currently chanting. We see you and we're so grateful. Mari, we have some true crime news today.
1: Yes, last week, 73-year-old Leslie Van Houten, a follower of Charles Manson, who was convicted of two killings, was released on parole. She was 19 when she joined Manson's cult, The Family. She's been in prison for 53 years. Four Manson family members remain in prison, ranging in age from 75 to 80. Manson died in prison in 2017. Sarah, do you also have some news, for us? I do, yes. Uh, I would think anyone within the sound of my voice would
0: remember the colour of the dress debate of <laughs> 2015, uh, but just in case you slept through that, uh, mother of the bride, Cecilia, sent a photo of a dress she was planning to buy for the wedding to her daughter, Grace, the bride. They disagreed on the colour, and that debate lit up the internet. Well, now the groom Keir Johnston has been indicted in the High Court in Glasgow for attempted murder of his wife, Grace. Johnston wow. is accused, yeah. Johnston is accused of a spree of domestic violence and coercive behavior against his wife, stretching between twenty nineteen and twenty twenty-two, although I believe it's actually an eleven-year period which predates their wedding. He has denied it, so we must remember that. So from internet flippery to something very serious, it's like it's nothing, does nothing get cancelled? So the colour of the dress debate, now cancelled. Can't talk about it anymore. I hope he likes uh, soft grey, which is the colour of prisoners' uniforms in the UK.
1: (laughs) Mari, what did we watch this week? This week, we watched How to Create a Sex Scandal, a three-part docuseries on Max. It was produced and directed by Julian Hobbs and Burnt Matter. Julian Hobbs produced and directed House of Hammer, which we covered in episode 25 with past and future guests of the podcast, Matt Scott. Joining us to unravel the tangles of this docuseries is screenwriter and entertainment commentator, Nicole Weaver. Nicole, welcome to the scene. Thank you. Thank you for having
2: me. Welcome. We're so excited.
1: Yes, yes, we are. And of course, since you are the first time guest with us, we're gonna ask you what's your true crime origin story? Like what true crime are you into? Are you into true crime? What got you into true crime? All of the all of the above.
2: Yeah. Very interesting. I I don't know what got me into it. I mean, I'm I'm black, so I think (laughs) because of that, maybe O.J. O.J. is like the big true crime Mm -hmm. story that like really hit us all and has lingered for so long. Um, But yeah, now I will watch most things, but the kind of documentaries that really um, get my interest is cults, weirdly. Mm -hmm. um yeah maybe it's a little bit of my own religious background but i am very interested in high control groups um
1: Mm. yeah well this isn't a cult but it's uh, a lot of manipulation uh, yes
0: (laughs) coercion control and abuse yes exactly
2: but that's my thing that that's one thing that I kind of wish we delve a little deeper. It starts off so hard with this series about the religion and how this town centers around conservatism or like Christianity. Um, but we didn't get into whether that had a huge effect in this household. Mm. I really kind of, yeah, that's just the lingering question I had from this.
0: Yeah, I think that's a very good point. I did notice that in the sort of man on the street interviews at the beginning about the town of Mineola, we'll get into it. But uh, the phrase God fearing came up a few times. I mean, I'm an atheist, but the God that I don't believe in is a loving God. So I always when I, when people say God fearing, I think, really, you fear your God? That's horrible.
1: Yeah. I agree. Uh, Not my God. (laughs) So, (laughs) Mine is a loving, gentle one. So, uh, yeah. But before we jump into the property, let's get to the crime. Um, So Margie and John Cantrell had a long history of caring for foster kids when they moved from California to Mineola, Texas in 2004. In Mineola, they took in seven year old Shelby, six year old Hunter and four year old Carly siblings who had been in the system after being removed from their parents. In 2004, after visiting the site of a former swingers club, Margie said that the children told her they were made to perform at the club by their parents after being taught what to do in a special kindergarten. When the local county law enforcement investigated and closed the case within two days, saying there was no evidence, Margie went to the neighboring county to demand that prosecutions be made. The trials were front page news. The children's mother, Chantelle, stepfather, Jamie, and friends of the family, Patrick Kelly and Dennis Pittman, were all sentenced to life in prison. The children's grandparents, Sheila and Jimmy, were accused of similar crimes by their youngest daughter, Gabby, and held in jail for four years awaiting trial. Around the time of the trials, Margie and John's adoptive daughter, Jenna, then an adult, brought accusations of historical sexual abuse against John. Later, Gabby recanted her accusations against Sheila and Jimmy. With this, as well as multiple instances of prosecutorial misconduct by the state, including Brady violations, the convictions were vacated and Chantel, Jamie and Patrick agreed to plea deals for their time served. Although never convicted, Sheila and Jimmy also took a plea deal for time served. However, Dennis Pittman remained in prison until he died of complications from COVID. In the documentary, Hunter, Carly, and Gabby, now in their 20s, confirmed that they were coached into making the allegations and that no such crimes occurred. Shelby has not recanted and maintained that the events occurred and she declined to be involved in the documentary margie and john have never been indicted so uh yeah it's a lot (laughs) it is it is a lot and i would definitely say definitely check out the docuseries because they do a very good job of like that sounded like a lot of names and it is it's a lot of people involved but the docuseries did a really good job of tracking like who was related to who and who was accusing who so if you haven't already watched it, I would definitely suggest you go watch the property first and then come back and listen to us uh because I th- I think it was a p- pretty good. So um let me just get everybody's just broad overall thoughts before we get into our discussion. I'll start with you Nicole. What were your just overall thoughts about the documentary? Did you enjoy it? What what are your thoughts?
2: Um I thought it was well done. I think when we finally figure out the why Mm because it left me wondering so long Is like what are what is she getting out of this Mm -hmm. and it came down to money 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 and like john with the accusations he has who knows um what else it's very sad i think Mm -hmm. it was it was a very good storytelling for how they did it but it left me a little frustrated because like we say um some people are freed but not everyone got that justice and like Mm -hmm. at the end of the day someone got to retire from this work Mm -hmm. and that's that's wild to me that he's just out there and of course didn't want to participate in this
1: yeah
0: sarah how about you Look, I, I thought it was very good. I had sort of heard something of this. I didn't really know the ins and outs of the story, and I was particularly concerned about a false accusation documentary mm-hmm. because I think we've worked—we, all of us—have mm-hmm. uh, worked so hard. Believe women, believe mm-hmm. children. Uh, children can't make up um, sexual accusations. But interestingly specific sexual accusations, Uh, but I felt that the documentary was very clear on how it had happened and what the children were coached to say, Mm -hmm. and certainly from the snips of the interrogation of the children, uh, they give no specifics, which should have been a red flag to anyone listening Mm -hmm. to them. Yeah, so I was concerned about bringing up a story where the accusations were false. But it was so well done. Like, it's not the Uh best thing we've ever seen. But the three episodes, I thought, went very swiftly. It's a three-episode docuseries that needed three episodes. I Uh needed that to untangle who was who. I thought agree, Nicole. They were very clear about who was who and what was what, even giving us family trees because Uh there's some – Intergenerational. So, for example, the children's aunt is the same age as as they are.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But I never felt lost there. My my feeling at the end, other than anger, was just sadness at this mm-hmm. devastation and waste of people's lives mm-hmm. and the self satisfaction of Margie, who is one of yeah. the major talking heads, was incredible because we got to, they gave us so much of her and we got to see, yes, she is able to turn and twist and charm and explain. Mm -hmm. Tears come to the eyes at the right time. I I thought the, I mean, Murray, you and I don't like the perpetrators being given airtime, but -hmm. I think in this case, in order to understand what happened, we needed to spend that much time with Margie ourselves. What did you
1: think? Oh, definitely. I agree. This is just like uh, when we talked about um, Natalia Grace and Michael giving the perpetrator enough rope to hang themselves is definitely different than, you know, letting them justify their crimes. You know what I'm saying? So I think I think it was perfectly appropriate for her to be there. And I loved how. They used her in the pacing of the series. So uh, this is one of those series where it I felt like it was better on a rewatch because I did not know the case going into it. The way that they unfold the docuseries is so good. It's so compelling because they kind of try to put you into one mindset and then gently guide you to the next one so that when you find out that it was all made up and, and that these children were coerced and stuff like that, it's an easy, it's an easy belief. It's an easy change because the 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 Easter eggs were kind of there the whole time. When you go back and you watch it again, you're like, oh, wait a minute. Like you really realize how much that the, docu- uh, the documentarians were holding back in like that first episode, episode and a half to then reveal it all by the the second and third. And it wasn't manipulative like, uh, you know, when we were talking about I just killed my dad and how I felt like I was being manipulated by the documentarian by having them have talking heads pretend like they were still in one spot with the case when they weren't. This one, they did a very good job of kind of How would you say omitting the truth in the first in the first episode or so and then revealing it toward the end? Did you guys pick that up? Did you pick up like one of the main things I picked up was when we saw Hunter going back to the swingers club in the first episode? And he said he walks in. He was like, this is where it all happened. This is where it all uh, all started. And then you switch to Margie telling the story you when you go back and rewatch it the second time you're like oh my god that didn't come from hunter's mouth like hunter wasn't the one telling the story of the abuse you know what i'm saying like he never they never had hunter in there saying yeah i felt that this happened to me you know what i'm saying like he you could tell that he maintained that that he this never happened and they didn't try and manipulate him to give them the sound bites um to make it feel otherwise. Does, does that make sense, Nicole? Am I making sense? That totally makes sense.
2: Um I did watch it twice as well and I do think on the second time it was um a better experience. I'm not going to lie. The first time I watched it and it started, I knew. I even knew from mm-hmm. the title and everything. Yeah. <laughs> it's fake, but once they started showing the parts of the interrogation where the kids are saying like, you can tell they're clueless mm-hmm. until she brings up a very specific thing about, did you take the money or did you do this? And um, I, I kind of sometimes hate when documentaries do that, but I do think it's effective, especially when there's always people questioning of, like, um, how, like, how could someone believe this or how could someone like let this happen? It just shows like
1: this mm-hmm. person
2: was pulling all the strings over very vulnerable people. And um yeah, I think honestly her being like a white woman too and mm-hmm. being able to cry on cue on and cue. stuff like yep. that. She just had a lot on her side. Mm-hmm.
0: Certainly I mean the, the specter of class it was definitely there from the start, and then it's actually explicitly called out, which I was very pleased about. But, yes, we get these snips of the children, and you think, oh, my God, listen to what they're saying. I mean, even though we're thinking, why is Margie in the interrogations? Mm-hmm. And even in those things, you could see her leading them. But in Episode 3, we get Dr James Wood, who's a professor of psychology and is uh, specialises in the interviewing of children and vulnerable people. Not only does he break down everything that's wrong in the SNPs, we now get much longer Mm -hmm. video of the Mm -hmm. interviews and we can see how they move from I don't know, I don't want to talk about it, no, it didn't happen, no, okay, yes, yes. Because these are children, Mm -hmm. young children. I don't have a child, but the children that I know when they were (laughs) kids, They want to please you. Yes. Hi, Mari. They want to please you. They want to know what it is that you want to know. And particularly if you think I'm in trouble, Gabby talks about being called to the principal's office and her first thought is, am I in trouble? And then you get taken to a three-hour interrogation as a seven-year-old. Surely you're just thinking, how do I get this to stop? We saw this with Brandon Dassey as well. Uh-huh. and many others. How do I get this to stop? What do the adults or what do the people in control want from me so that this can end? And, you know, it's not the children are liars. I'm not saying that, but they're little sponges and they want uh-huh. to know where they fit, what answer is required, how to be good. And in fact, Dr. Wood does point out the moments where they praise these children. You're doing really well. Good girl. Well done. So, yeah, I, I was with you, Nicole, on this, but the class and the, um, the perceived goodness of Margie, who at one point had 15 teenagers in her house, worked against the people who were accused.
1: Yeah, and as somebody who has a toddler right now, who's four years old, kids, you have to understand how kids communicate, because when they're at that young of an age, their communication skills are still learning and still growing. So that's why there are people who are specialized and trained in reading children and helping children and with child sexual abuse, um, you know, in child sexual abuse cases. That's you can't just go and be a regular person off the street and interrogate a child on if they're being abused or not like people people take years and years of studying to to be able to do that correctly and not only that they have to learn to be as objective as possible unfortunately margie did learn how to do that she does have a certificate in like behavioral intervention with kids Uh, But she was anything but objective. She had a a goal in mind with these kids and she knew how to manipulate them to get what she wanted out of them. And... It, it that's that's the reason why it takes so much training not because kids are liars but because kids communicate in in different various ways lord knows as a mom i'm learning that when he says i'm sleepy that doesn't necessarily mean it's sleepy it means he wants to stop doing what he's doing right now and go somewhere else and into a different room of the house like it's it, it's a lot of different variables when it comes to dealing with kids and the way that they handled these interviews and handled these kids was shocking. I did love that the, that the filmmakers uh, did, like you said, Sarah, Sarah, they first showed us some of just the kind of like small incriminating snippets. And then by the time at the end, they showed us the longer ones where you're like, Oh my God, come on. And it made me think like, that's what juries see. You know what I'm saying? Because exactly. Yes. Sometimes only certain, frames or certain parts of the videos are shown to the juries. And if they're shown that and if they're already prone to thinking that these people committed this crime, then it's going to look more incriminating. And that's what I loved about this. This property is like kind of like when you watch it the first time, you're just kind of like absorbing what's being presented to you until you get to the end and you're like oh okay like oh yeah this is really bad it's really messed up so by the time you go back for that second watch you're really you're really looking for the 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 really sussy stuff that's going on you know um with the case and i think that that a
0: couple of the talking heads that I wanted to highlight were the reporters, Mm -hmm. Tamara Jolie, who was a news television reporter and Michael Hall uh, from the Texas Monthly on whose writing a lot of this is based. But I thought what Tamara gave us was really interesting because she took us from uh, that she believed what she was told, Mm -hmm. that this had happened and you know, she would see herself as an objective reporter, but that she was drawn in and she took us through, I thought really honestly, like she didn't come out well, she wasn't trying to cover it up, of the change that she had to go through mm. uh, with the story. And I thought that was something we don't often see, that change through, mm-hmm. Nicole.
2: Absolutely. I mean, I have a journalism degree and mm-hmm. I think I, I, do what I do because I love entertainment, but the biggest thing that had me against doing, covering like local events like this is that you can get it wrong. Like that, mm. I can't imagine what that would do to me for the rest of my life. If I covered a story one way and it turned out to be another, um, I, the moment with her that really stood out to me is when she learned about, um, dennis Pittman mm-hmm.
1: uh
2: dying and just yeah
1: that's, that was sad that was
2: a definite casualty out of all of this and it's it's so upsetting he should have should have never been there and should exactly. have definitely been able to get out the fact that he was able to watch everyone else be free and like who knows why he wasn't Getting out and like I have questions about the medication he was put on. Like, there was there were a few little tidbits in the peripheral that I'm like, I want more of this. Like, I want to look more into this because I mm-hmm. think so much more of the systemic, like bigger things influencing how these things played out um should also take a highlight. But then again, it was a yeah. very smooth three episodes. So
1: true. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs>
0: I, I think some sometimes we ding documentaries for leaving stuff out or not exploring things. And then others we say, oh, there's it's now going to make me go and look at these other avenues, and that can be a good thing. And I think in this case it's a good thing because there's the whole line of the prosecutorial misconduct, the Brady violations, mm-hmm. which um, I mean I'm sure our listeners know, but it means that the state – Conceals exculpatory information, in other words, uh-huh. it conceals things which can help the defence. They're not allowed to do that, and that was done in in this case. So there was a whole side of law enforcement and the legal system, which is glanced at by the documentary. And Dennis Pittman, as far as I understand it, when the convictions of the others were vacated and a plea deal was offered and accepted, mm. he had an appeal in already in process, mm-hmm. and so that meant, for some reason, he couldn't have his conviction, conviction vacated. Mm-hmm. I don't know the ins and outs. Law, if you are out there, please uh, email us and let us know. We can say on the next one why, why yeah. that happened. But, you know, parole, he, his continual denial of parole is, is just beggars' uh, understanding.
1: Yeah, Dennis Pittman um, was like the unfortunate person who ended up getting um, convicted last. And the ca- the cases themselves took over like four years to prosecute. And he he just happened to be in the gray zone that the others weren't. So the first three people had already been convicted and serving their felonies when their appeals brought forth the um, the the vacations of, of their sentencing and then the two people behind him Jimmy and Sheila were in holding because they couldn't afford bail because you know police cuz they were poor um yeah <laughs> <Literally. laughs> yeah sure and because they were they hadn't even they hadn't gone to trial yet they were able in a position to uh plea out because they were currently they were currently being held without bail and they were able to plea out fine. Unfortunately, Dennis Pittman had just had basically just been convicted um and his like we said his his appeal was processing. It wasn't it wasn't um it hadn't been um confirmed yet like the other three. So he was waiting. Now, why it took them like they they don't they don't specifically state in the documentary, but if I if my math is right, he he had to have done about 12 years in the prison system, right? Because oh. I would have thought yes, at least at least, right? Because the event for two
0: thousand and four, and it was four years that uh, so, Sheila and Jimmy are in jail are in jail waiting for four years. So two thousand eight, yeah, 2008, 2008. yeah it was
1: fifteen yeah. years. Yeah, so well, 14, yeah, but till twenty 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 because he passed away mm-hmm. from COVID. So. That's right. So that that's the biggest thing that doesn't make sense to me, because if their appeals uh, happened in around 2008, around that same time, like right after he got convicted, why did his appeal take that long? And then it never got I mean, it never got resolved because he died like 12 years. Like he, he he like Nicole said, he shouldn't have been in prison in order to catch the covid complications because what a lot of people don't know or a lot of people don't talk about a lot of prisoners died in that first wave of covid because there were just n- no sanitary precautions in the prison system so mm-hmm. and, and well she as Sheila signs itself says about
0: margie but it kind of covers so much she's the rich lady they're going to believe her over the poor mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. with poor people problems mm-hmm. one of the problems being they can't make bail Mm-hmm. So they're in jail for four years with the abuse and deprivation that jail, which yeah. is not a rehabilitation, people. It's a punishment. Don't let anyone tell you it's a rehabilitation. Uh, with no conviction. They're not convicted of anything. So that that class, that
2: rich and poor, is, is really prevalent. Sadly, we take away that the people who pled guilty yeah. got for that deal get out but he actually wanted to fight and say this is wrong and that's how you really get screwed over by the court system Yep, that's just the sad lesson learned and they still have those felonies Mm -hmm. like but yeah the money so the money oh my goodness this was ridiculous and i (laughs) i think everything the the foster system the fact that they do give money to
1: these foster mm-hmm. families rather
2: than just giving money to the original families who are struggling, like where most of their strife. No it it makes no sense. But and like I am such a I'm online a lot, and there's a lot of people who want to the the hysteria around the swingers club, which was only with consenting adults. Thank had you. To, Make it about children to mm-hmm. make their hysteria feel warranted, and like there, we're seeing a lot of that right now. There's a person mm-hmm. who I listen to who dives into cult mentality, um, and she said, "Any any statement can be turned to an extreme, and that extreme here is protect the children.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Protect the children, meaning we're we're going to lie, make." forced them to lie about what happened at this um club and then yeah, which was
0: closed by that time which was that closed
2: time, and like, and derelict that's that's also the frustrating thing they won like they won and they still mm-hmm. needed to make a fuss and to think it all came down to money and like who knows what else um a lot of people say like um child child trafficking sex trafficking mm-hmm. all of that is like stranger danger and they come mm-hmm. up with new things you need to look on the street no it like there's things that are in the system that's completely legal that if it if it wasn't you would be like oh isn't that like child trafficking
1: mm-hmm. yep that's a great point nicole like honestly as as somebody whose family fostered and then adopted the system is so rigged. It is, it is completely rigged. And, and these children very rarely find the good homes that they're looking for. They sometimes often end up in, in group homes where abuse runs rampant. Or in homes like this, which technically, I mean, technically, Margie was running a group home. 15, 15 teenagers at one point she had in her house. I'm sorry. To me, it it, it smells of money. Like again, we only fostered one child, one adoptee. You know what I'm saying? Like in like doing it out of the goodness of your heart oh we we afford we could afford not to work anymore magically now that we have 15 kids in here and seeing those statements and those bills of what she could have been making per child plus if the child has issues disabilities they get um like you know uh, social security and, and disability checks and stuff like that it was just so frustrating to see and see people take advantage of a system like Nicole said the system is made in a way that people can find loopholes and rig it and it'll all be perfectly legal to abuse these kids and that's exactly what what Margie and um, John did
0: because I I don't get well I mean I I do get it because it's capitalism and it's and it's Mm -hmm. racism and it's it's um, oh, yeah, classism and all of that. But so parents, a mother or parents are struggling. They can't afford to feed their children. Someone notices the children are not being fed. CPS is called. You take the children out of that house, mm-hmm. You put them into a foster house, and you pay the foster parents. Yeah. Give the original parents the money to feed the children, mm-hmm. surely. Mm-hmm. But it's not. That doesn't turn those wheels of capitalism and it doesn't turn the wheels of keeping an underclass under, which is very important for capitalism. But other than money, I would like to posit that Margie (laughs) loves being an abuser. Margie loves being in control. Margie Mm -hmm. loves hitting Hunter. Never hit the girls. Never hit the girls. But, you know, pop Hunter in the mouth hit a child in the mouth. Mm. I, I, it's uh, yes. Plus she was covering for her, her husband, John. So I yeah. think money was there, but there was also this atmosphere and, and you brought up cults, Nicole. It,
2: it, it's a cult in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She starts off talking about, she drove to this swingers club and prayed oh, on the door and then it closed. And I'm like, okay I want to know what you're indoctrinating all these kids in like I really want to know I want to know like what was like the chore set up what was the actual Uh we saw a little bit of the living situation but like they weren't allowed to go outside like they sounded like they were like held captive Uh and on top of that it wasn't just good enough that she had these other people's children like she needed to go after them to make sure they were somehow away and could like never get them back it was so many tears of evil that I, <laughs> that I just my brain my brain can't could process,
1: not, it. <laughs> could
2: not process it and yeah like, it was so sad because whose mother was it when she said the documentarian or interviewer asked, "What did you learn from this?" And she said, "You can't trust anybody."
0: That was Sheila. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah.
2: That would so be because, my mindset. Because again,
0: why didn't the three children go to Sheila and and Jimmy? Yeah, who who had a child of their age at Gabby uh, in the house already? I mean, we have that. We have that question here when um, Aboriginal children are taken. They are supposed to go to family as the first option. Mm-hmm. Is there a family member to take mm-hmm. these children in uh, temporarily or or, or otherwise? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the Australian government is no saint in, in this either because, again and again, they are not placed with they're supposed to go to mob, they're supposed to go to uh, family first, then mob, and then as an absolute last resort, people who aren't Aboriginal and it just, it just, they skip the steps where an auntie or a grandmother or one of their mob can take them mm-hmm. and keep them within the culture.
2: That's why I'm so curious, like, what was Margie and John's connections? Because, <laughs> like, I, it's smelling mm. like they had some political connections or some connections in of mm-hmm. leaders in the community that led to this. Because it just, it don't.
1: It does not smell right. I mean, all she really needed to have was the saint. I think that that saintly image. And I think that was another motivator other than the money is to have that saintly image of I'm the savior of these children. I'm a foster mom of all of these children. I am helping them without me. They would be nothing. Uh, We are that family on the street, that loving family with all the kids. And you can trust us. You know what I'm saying? I don't know if she needed much more pull than that in that small of a, that small of a town with that Christian of a community, um, over the people who are in the trailers who are addicted mm-hmm. to crack, you know, mm-hmm. because, because they're poor. Mm-hmm. Um, and like w- one thing I, I definitely want to talk about before we, we move on real quick. I mean, it, there's a lot to talk about <laughs> and I think we're, we're, we're talking about a lot of high level things, but I really want to talk about Jenna, their, um, yes, their oldest foster daughter who ended up um she was actually uh, they actually adopted her she
0: was an adoptive daughter
1: okay yeah yeah she, she was with them for so long
0: right yeah yeah yes because they made her believe that no one would want her
1: yeah she 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 came to them around what seven or eight or, or something like that and she stayed until she was 24 until she found basically until she found a man to escape with it, and uh, her husband David, her Jenna. We got Jenna and David as talking heads, and and they really came out came out um, in episode two, and I really I really liked talking to. To them because I felt like Jenna gave us a little bit more background into John and Margie themselves other than away from the case of of the children and she talked about how John had been abusing her since she was young she started like drinking at 9 and 10 to deal with it she stayed with them because she had nowhere else to go and when she when they moved to Mineola because she was one of their original California kids when she moved to Mineola with them and she finally found David she was able to break away with David and she initially wasn't even going to tell David what happened because of course they told her oh if you tell a husband or boyfriend what happened they won't want you because again patriarchy and all that um but once she saw what the kids were saying about uh their family she she broke down and she confessed to David David accepted her loved her and actually was told her that she should tell the police he he was her support in telling the police um and are we, I'm not surprised that unfortunately her case came to nothing because it's historical abuse. It was abuse that happened like close to two decades prior, no evidence and yada, yada, yada. This is what happens. But I do want to say the audacity, the audacity for Margie to turn around and be like, oh, but. Shelby then said that David was there all of a sudden and mm-hmm. it was just like there were just so many what the fuck moments of the 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 this story that was being concocted that as an outsider you're like y'all pos- couldn't possibly have believed any of this you know what i'm saying but when you have so many people trying to make careers off of these convictions of course they're going to try and 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 convict on certain things and the only reason let's be honest the only reason why the david charges didn't stick is because they didn't have anything as as like fishy enough to be able to spin in order for them to stick you know what i'm saying well the only i mean sheila says that the children said
0: there was a tattooed man with a a tattoo of a dragon on his back. Now, David in clothes looks like he's very heavily tattooed. Mm -hmm. So you would imagine, if you've never seen him without his clothes, that he would have a tattoo on his back, that she was rolling the dice there. Mm -hmm. And in a moment of incredible vulnerability, Mm -hmm. David in a sort of darkened room takes his clothes off and turns, and he doesn't have a tattoo on his back. But for David to do that, for his wife, Jenna, for us, for the children, I I literally had tears in my eyes at at this man's love. But also, like, lucky he didn't have a
2: tattoo on his back. Mm -hmm. That was the weirdest kind of profile ever. Like, like that just, oh, he would look like a guy with a dragon tattoo on his back, and I'm going to bet everything on that. Like, but she's lied about, so many other things and they just hardly double check or at least
1: the first Mm -hmm. county
2: because the first county closed that in two days
1: yep they were like we don't have nothing here
2: i want to know what they were thinking as they were watching this other county just run with it like that's Mm -hmm. that's so wild but it just shows like if you did just an ounce of work Mm -hmm. you'd be like there's there's nothing there um but no i was so proud of uh jenna and just saying something when she probably could have just like kept it moving it did give even more light and then it put her at risk being in this documentary of being um attacked again by margie which margie Uh margie loves a sensational story because Uh it can't already be that oh jenna came from like a hard background. Obviously, she like tried to accuse her of like hurting animals and stuff. And it's like, <laughs> what is wrong with you? Like, I yeah. truly with people like this who jump to the weirdest lies, like the most awful lies. Is like, how is that just at the tip of your tongue?
1: Yeah, exactly. And it and it and it truly is my thought process is she if they get the child to say oh there's a dragon on his back and if there's no dragon. It, it, if there is something there, they can be like, oh, I thought it was dragon, but or something. The fact that there was nothing there, like legitimately helped. And in um, and one last thing <laughs> before you wrap this part up, um, I want to say the one part of the documentary that um, I thought they did very well. I mean, not one of many parts, but um, we got we got four trials. Right. And they kind of yada yada over the first two. Reasonably so because it's 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 okay to assume that both Jamie Pittman and Chantel, the the kid's stepfather and their mother, only had public defenders. So Jamie Pittman's first trial, his trial lasted three days and the jury found him guilty in 10 minutes. Like, Sarah, I know you've done jury duty over there in australia nicole have you done jury duty here in the the states before only to sit in a room and they said that's it go home exactly (laughs) same same here but i can't even imagine i feel like it takes 10 minutes to file into the room and just get a vote off like 10 minutes i am shooken that that that's how close that one was and then chantel the jury did deliberate deliberate for about two hours before they, before they found her guilty. Um, But I think it was the third trial and this is where I'm getting at. Patrick Kelly, AKA Booger Red's trial where we had Thad Davison as a talking head. He was um, Patrick Kelly's uh, lawyer who he really, he was the person that for in episode two, the case breakdown portion, he was the one who was breaking down the case to us like in an evidentiary level and i really appreciate it because he was the one who was like again he wasn't a public defender booger reds (laughs) i don't want to call him booger red but it's just so much easier to say but booger booger red's family was able to afford that david davidson and thad was able to actually work the case and he did a marvelous job working the case him talking to the previous county that had no evidence him going through the quote unquote evidence that they had him finding the exculpatory evidence that was withheld in the first two trials um so many things that that did that was broken down to us w- was so good and it and it's still unfortunate that patrick uh, Booger Red ended up being found guilty because at that point they are already convicted two other people, mm-hmm. and so to not convict him would basically be saying that those first two people shouldn't have been convicted. But
0: that was one of the the um, prosecutorial misconducts is bringing up yeah. the previous convictions. You're not know, allowed to do yep. that. Thad objected. The judge let it happen. Mm-hmm. So yep. you know, but also there's the dis. I mean, we haven't talked about the disappearing evidence. The tapes that were made or (laughs) were made, the lists of of uh, of license plates outside the swingers club, which may or may not have included law enforcement. I mean, it's it's rich, this uh, documentary. But with all of that, there I never felt confused. I always felt like uh, I was being told the story.
2: Absolutely.
1: Yeah. All right. Nicole. So, how many magnifying glasses are you going to rate how to create a sex scandal out of a possible five?
2: I'll give it a four. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think I, like we said, it went down smoothly. The subject matter was interesting and it did an effective job.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: I think the only thing I can leave out for that fifth class was just all the little questions. But it's like... Mm-hmm will I actually ever be satisfied? Cause at the end of the day, it's <laughs> yeah. just showing that our system is unsatisfying it's mm-hmm. it's,
1: yep.
2: and it's like that on purpose.
1: Agreed. Sarah, how many magnifying glasses are you going to rate how to create a sex scandal out of a possible five?
0: On first watch, I might've been wavering between three and a half and four, but, but on second watch, it's definitely a four. I'm with Nicole. Mm-hmm. We've seen a few in our in our 66 episodes, Mari, mm-hmm. a few, mm-hmm. the legal system, the justice system is irreparably effed and mm-hmm. this, this can't continue to happen. This happened to these this six people plus the children, nine people. This happened to these people. How many do we not hear? For every wrongful conviction documentary and release mm-hmm. after 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, how many wrongfully convicted people are in jail. It brings up the the reason that there are now these people with this hideous felony on their records because they pleaded guilty who did not do it because the crime didn't exist. Like not only are they confessing to a crime they didn't do, they're confessing to a crime that didn't exist in order to continue with their lives. I mean, Sheila and Jimmy were four years in jail and and getting older How are they going to get out? Where's their speedy trial? And they stand for many, many people. And that's, that's the, I think that's what makes it a four is the, without hitting us over the head, it's glancing and referring to for every one of these people, there's a hundred or a thousand. And I certainly thought the people that we talked to were very interesting. I would like to find uh, 2015 a hybrid documentary narrative film directed by Bernd Matter, one of the producers and directors of this, called Booger Red. It sounds like a very interesting property. I haven't been able to track it down. If anyone finds it, that would be great. This is one of the perhaps side characters, and mm-hmm. it's interesting that there's a documentary about him, and it seems to be like an exploration of the, the themes and and the the thoughts that uh, come up in this documentary. So, yes, for me, it's a four. What about you, Mari?
1: Yeah, uh, I was always leaning towards a four coming into this conversation and I think I, I I will stick with that. The docu-series was very good compared to like a lot of the ones that we saw. I can't, I can't really add on to anything you guys said because it's true, everything was good. I, I think that it was perfectly balanced. Um, it's it's kind of uh, interesting to me that one of the directors and producers did The House of Hammer, when which we notoriously hated. ripped to shreds yes. for how many episodes that was. I couldn't
0: was. believe it because I only looked that up after I'd seen it. <laughs> yeah. I couldn't believe that the same person was responsible because that yes. was an absolute.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it was bad. So I, I'm glad to see maybe they're they're learning a little bit. Um, but this, this is definitely one of those properties that I would suggest you go and watch because it's another, it's an it's another one of those properties where you're like, oh my God, I did not know this was happening somewhere in the US, you know. <laughs> uh, all right, let's go on to our recommendations. Nicole, what do you have to recommend to our listeners? So
2: um, I'm a host of Black by Reality podcast. Um, right now, we are covering, and just like that, I know the first season got a lot of, a lot of hate, but I think I'm really enjoying the second season. I feel like they're addressing a lot of what fans said who loved Sex in the City, and still t- staying true to some of the things that um, they they're trying to do with their stories. Um, but if you are more in the crimey realm, uh, we're also covering Cruel Summer, which is a nice little teen show. It it gives like a very light summer read, honestly, and someone dies. And you have to figure out everything that led up to that. So, yeah, those are my my two recommendations.
1: Great. Uh, Sarah, what do you have uh, to recommend to our listeners?
0: I'm going to recommend uh, a work of fiction, um, something a bit lighter. It's an Australian comedy police drama. It's set in Tasmania and it's called Deadlock, uh, which is the name of the town and the lake, L-O-C-H. This comes from Kate McCartney and Kate McClellan. Uh, Australians will know them as the duo behind the catering show and other things. If you like dialogue like, "His Dick's on fire, and... A wombat just shat on Princess Mary within the first five minutes of your eight-part comedy police drama, then this is the show for you. Uh, it's on Prime in Australia and in the US, and I thoroughly recommend it. How about you, Mary? Mm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Are you just recovering from no, the, the, the Wombat? <laughs>
1: yes. Um yeah, I, I too am going something a different route again. We're going to bring the lightness to this, uh, to this one. Uh, I binged Survival of the Thickest last week. It's Michelle Buteau's uh, comedy uh, that she I'm pretty sure she created and wrote for Netflix and she stars in it. It is so good uh, for so many reasons. Um, it's one of those where it's like it it follows her and her life and it's fictional because it's it's not really michelle Busto, but it's it's like a sex in the city in a sense that it's oh we're following this person and we're going through their life and their struggles and stuff like that but it's so different than any other type of show like that to me because the lead is she's 38 she's a thicker girl it's it's it, you know it it's no joking about how they're not joking about how how big she is it's like it's her real life and it, there's lots of queer and inclusive representation in it it the, the jokes are so funny without being mean to anybody it's it's just perfect it's like it's a perfect binge it's a perfect show I loved it it's something it feels new and fresh and it feels like um it feels like where I want some comedy and shows to go you know what i'm saying like it it didn't feel like any marginalized community was the butt of any joke um it it felt like it uplifted and it introduced me to celebrity styling which i did (laughs) i was like i is this what celebrity stylists really do like it was very interesting so definitely go check out survival of the thickest on netflix if you haven't already at Crime Scene, we are eager to hear your feedback and suggestions for future episodes. You can follow Crime Scene on Twitter at Crime Scene R-H-A-P, That's crime S E E N R H A P. Or email us at Crime Scene RHAP at gmail.com. We're on
0: TikTok at crime.scene and on Instagram, Threads <laughs> and Facebook at Crime Scene Podcast. And please remember to subscribe to our feed. Rob has the website dot com slash crime feed. It makes a big difference.
1: Nicole, what do you have going on and where can people find you?
2: Um, I have the Black by Reality podcast. So like I said, we're doing recaps of Full Summer and, and just like that um, on our YouTube account. I have a YouTube exclusive uh, series where I get my partner to basically make food from the TV shows I'm watching.
1: <laughs> oh. <laughs> nice. It's
2: a lot of work for them, but I get to enjoy some delicious food and try to get them to watch a clip of my show. So it's a good <laughs> trade off, I think.
1: <laughs> oh, I love that. Uh, Sarah, what about you? Where can the people find you?
2: Well, the people can
0: follow me on all social media at Sarah Carradine. Over on Silent Podcasts, I'm covering Season 1 of The Traders New Zealand and Season 2 of The Traders Australia with Ninja Warrior Sean Bryan. Our preseason warm-up episode will drop next week. And what about you, Mari?
1: Of course, every week, me and Matt Scott are talking wrestling over at the Wrestling Rehab Up podcast. It was great to have Matt back this week, uh, catching up with him and talking about mostly the Judgment Day. Um, You don't even have to watch wrestling. You could be a casual fan, a lapsed fan, or not a fan at all. Just go listen to me and Matt because we're funny. Uh, You can go to RobHasAWebsite.com slash wrestling feed in order to subscribe there um i also was on a big brother a big brother offseason podcast where uh it was a winners all of the winners of the other drafts from the off season, got together to do a draft and a brand steal it was a riveting three hours of uh big brother simulation uh so you can go check that out on the rob has a podcast youtube page i will also be doing rhap game night coming up um, so again, you can check that out over on the Rob has a podcast YouTube page. And I will be, oh man, so much. Uh, I will be co-hosting The Bachelorette this week with Amy talking about charities, guys. So I got to go watch that. But other than that, you can find everything I'm doing. I'll post all of my podcasts on Twitter. Oh, I'm sorry, I mean, X by going to Mari Talks Too Much. <laughs> on twitter that's at maury talks too much the two two like the number two Ooh,
0: sarah what are we covering next time so next time on crime scene we're covering look into my eyes that's look into my eyes with kimberly and katie from a date with dateline you can watch it on prime and send us your comments and
1: questions Thanks to Nicole Weaver for joining us. Will from America for the theme music and the whole RHAP team behind the scenes. Until next time, case Case closed. closed.